Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. How are you? Last week we had an amazing time talking to the people from the Oprah Book Club who maybe had never been to The Gathering Room before. So if you came across us then, and now you're back here with us in The Gathering Room, those of us who've been hanging in from the beginning, we just want to welcome you and give you a big friendly squeeze because... It feels really good to get together on a Sunday, and I've come to depend on it deeply for my happiness. (laughs) So, what I said last week, that I have discovered that three things more than any other things help sustain things like neuroplastic pain and other forms of discontent in our lives. And those three things, you may recall, were self-criticism, pressuring yourself, and worrying. All right. And I said I was going to go on a program to get rid of those things. The fact that they make us sick and and miserable means that they can't be true. So even though, for example, you could you could you show me the headlines today and I'd be like, yeah, I, I have just reason to worry. It is right to worry because look at everything that's going on. But the fact is, worrying makes me sick and miserable. Hmm. In my little cosmology, The truth sets you free. So whatever doesn't set you free cannot be the truth. And if you're miserable and sick, you're not as free. So hmm, maybe my worries aren't the truth. As Roy Rogers said, I know worrying works because nothing I worry about ever happens. Good point. We spend a lot more time worrying and fussing than we do actually making things better. And maybe if we weren't so worried and fussy, we would see opportunities and take opportunities to make things better more often. So I thought, these things cannot be the truth, self-criticism, self-pressure, and worry. And I'm going to go on a program to get rid of them. It's like a a ramped up integrity cleanse, yeah? And I invited you to to join me. So I've been working on it. When I say I'm going to work on something, I work on it. I will tell you that. I don't always succeed. In fact, I almost never succeed, but I will work on it. So I've been working on it. And I want to start today with self-criticism and a program that I have launched inside my own beady brain to help replace self-criticism. And I call it hardcore kindness because it has been like starting a workout program and learning to meditate at the same time all over again. It's not for the faint-hearted, except that it's the only thing that will cure the (laughs) faint-hearted. It actually, like, I've talked before about how I've been using some of the meditative techniques on neuroplastic pain and I can feel the pain going away because I get a lot of it still, but it's up and down. It doesn't persist because I know how to work with it. Well, I was, I had a really, I thought I'd really kind of strained my back, like really injured it because I was having a really rough time with it and it wasn't going away. I was icing it. I was stretching it. I was doing all the things. And then I decided to do my hardcore kindness thing. And I just started noticing when self-criticism comes up. And then I would try to replace it with hardcore kindness because I realized it's not enough to say, oh, I'm criticizing myself again. I mustn't do that. It actually comes across as another form of self-criticism and puts me into this spiral of, I'm not doing it right, which is just making the problem worse. See, see what I mean here? So I decided that I was going to replace self-criticism with self-kindness, active self-kindness. And I found out that 
my brain goes to self-criticism many times a minute. And that means that many times a minute, I have to turn it around. I say turn it around with some forethought because those of you who know Byron Katie's work, which I love, one of her one of her words is turnaround. You get a thought that upsets you and you go through her process of questioning, which is too detailed and beautiful to talk about right here. Plus she does broadcasts on it every like Tuesday and Thursday. Check it out. Like you should watch her work. She is a master. So one of the parts of her program is that you take a thought that makes you unhappy and you look at the exact opposite of the thought to see if that could be just as true. And one thing I like to do with a turnaround is I, I force myself to find evidence that might indicate the turnaround of my thought is true. So I know this is, it's very cerebral up to now, but let, so let's do one. So um, I, for example, I did an interview um, a couple of weeks ago and I think I've told you this story over and over again. They're different interviews. They're always the same. This is what happens. I go, I do an interview and then I kick myself for six weeks because of the things that I didn't say that I should have said, the things that I shouldn't have said that I did say and the stupid way I said all of them. See, it's very easy. This, I fall right into this. I'm not allowed to think that way anymore. So to my way of thinking, this interview did not go well. I had a producer saying one thing that messed up my mind. The interviewer was going a different direction. That messed up my mind. I was worried about getting it right between the interviewer and the producer. And as a result, I basically said, yeah, yeah, for half an hour. Okay. <clears throat> this is where the hardcore kindness comes in. I have to find the thoughts that are making me cringe. That did not go well. Okay. The obvious turnaround is that did go well. Now, my brain does not initially believe that. And this is because I have hardwired it for self-criticism. Boom, boom, boom. And you guys out there, you know what this is like. You've, some of you are hardwired for anxiety. Some of you are hardwired for uh, hostility. I don't know. <laughs> but we, we tend to be hardwired to be hard on ourselves. The culture encourages it and our little beady brains pick it up. So it did go well. I've told you the reason it didn't. It did go well. Okay, well, the feedback I got afterward through email, they said they loved it. And of course my brain goes, well, they're lying or they're wrong. No, no, I have to look for more reasons that it did go well. I loved all the people there, genuinely. Okay, so when I'm in a state of love, it can't be all bad. Another reason it went well. I did not actively throw up, okay? Another reason it went well, uh, I, want, I made friends from the people that were there. Another reason, it, I don't, so I could go on and on and on. And the fact is I have to in order to keep my brain from sliding into those ruts of self-criticism. So the first aspect of hardcore kindness, if you guys, oh, I left out the most important part. Mm -hmm. As I forced myself to think about why the turnarounds of my self-criticism are true, the pain in my back went, gone. Like for the first time in weeks, gone. Like, yeah, okay. How many times do I have to test this to believe that it's really true? And by the word true, that reminds me that 
I think our bodies relax when we get to the truth of a situation, not just our subjective feelings, but the truth. So, huh, maybe I'm aligning with the, uh, the phenomenon of it's having done well. Hmm, maybe that's true. My back's relaxing. How interesting. So anyway, if you want these benefits, and there are many, the first thing you have to do is you commit to kindness hardcore. Uh, and that's a big, you know, it's easy for us to say, I'm going to get hardcore mean to myself. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to, but what if you're hardcore kind? Like I will allow no uncorrected self-criticism into my mind. I will not torture myself with thoughts that hurt me. That's the first thing you have to make a genuine commitment. Just like any integrity cleanse. It's like, you're going to do this. You're going to do it the whole way. All right. Second thing. This is tricky because when you're being hardcore kind, you have to do it kindly. So I can't say to myself, that didn't go well and I hate myself. Oh, you're criticizing yourself again. How can you be such an idiot? You're gonna go to the kindness. To be hardcore kind, I have to do that kindly. And to me, it's a little bit like adopting another child is what it's been like. I've got this little kid in there and I'm like, so I have to start talking to myself to correct the unkindness, but I have to do it kindly. So I'm like, I have to start with, okay, you're really criticizing yourself. I see that. How does it feel? It doesn't feel good. Yeah, you feel how sick you feel in your stomach and your back is hurting. Whew, let's see. Let's just see if we can let that go. I understand why you would be criticizing yourself. Totally understandable. But let's see if another way of thinking works better, shall we? Would you like to play with me? Would you like to give this a try? And you can start, I have to talk myself into the kindness as part of the hardcore kindness, yeah? So when I'm in there, then the third thing is sustain, sustain, sustain. Where the brain is concerned, what fires together, wires together. So every time I think a thought of kindness, if I can sustain and repeat it, and I start robbing energy from the self-critical neuron pathways, which are many and deep, I'll start to reprogram my brain to do this automatically, to go to kindness automatically. So those are the three components. And if, you, if you're not ready for it, I just would like you to consider it. Because hardcore kindness, first thing is you have to commit to it all the way. If you're only kind to yourself three hours a day and you're mean to yourself the other 21, you're not gonna see the effect. This has to be an experiment where the conditions are, are fairly extreme so that you can notice the difference. Next thing, to be hardcore kind, you have to be kind all the time, even when you're being hardcore. So as I tell myself, this is, we're, we're going on a really big adventure. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if we can do this all the way and see what the results are when you're really kind all the time? And then the third thing is just constant maintenance, constant hygiene. Like I wish I had little flags that were like self-criticism. Eventually I get to it because suffering takes me there. Oh, I'm so miserable and I have waves of shame drowning me. All right, I'm probably being self-critical. Notice I haven't even gotten to the other two things, worry and pressuring myself. We'll get to those later. Right now, I'm just working on self-criticism and replacing it with self-kindness. Oh, another little hint that I noticed is, um, and this is part of the Hardcore Kindness Program, just want to reiterate, 
the more reasons you can give yourself for the kindness being accurate, the better it sticks in the brain. So when you're self-critical and then you stop and say, oh, no, 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 come on. Let's, that's, we don't talk to ourselves that way anymore. That's not nice. We don't need more hate in the world. We don't need more people attacking. So let me not attack myself. What are some reasons? Let me see. I've done so many interviews that went well. I've done, you know, I've, I've gotten to meet so many people and the times that it didn't go well, people can be so wonderful at overlooking my flaws. Is it like the world is really kind to me when I think about it? And even if I literally did throw up, a lot of people would just say, oh my God, that would feel awful. So I, I'm starting to talk myself not only into kindness to myself, but into a kind world. This is the big payoff that I'm experiencing. Yes, I can make it so, it's incredible. When pain comes, I can just melt it most of the time, unless I've like bruised myself. But if it's just tension pain, I can get that to back off with hardcore kindness. And then the way the world is starting to change is really interesting. And it's a feedback loop because I've found that after a session of self-kindness, which I've been doing in the morning, instead of meditating, I am doing like hardcore kindness to myself for like a solid half hour to an hour. Just sit there and say nice, kind things to yourself. <laughs> How are you feeling today? Oh, tell me more. Oh, is your foot sore? Oh, we're going to make that foot feel better. That kind of thing. So <laughs> I know. It's not culturally normative, therefore it looks absurd. But is it absurd? No, it's perfect because I'm being kind to myself. So after I get up from that and I, inter I interact with another person, I'm so naturally kind to the other person. And I look at all the nastiness in the world and all the horrors and dictators and tyrants there are out there. And I think, oh my goodness, I was a tyrant and a dictator inside my own head, you know, screaming mean things at the other insides of me. If the world is going to change at all through human consciousness, the only point where I can change it is right here and right here. So this kindness thing, it's a threefer. You get a healthier body and mind. You get a world that it grows increasingly soft and gentle. And what you bring to the world is positive instead of negative. It's part of the healing that the world so desperately needs. So that's my hardcore kindness program. And now I want to hear some of your questions about it. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose, and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. is full of motors. Okay, here we go. Dr. Donna says, does self-criticism hide itself as judgment or envy of others? Will the same self-kindness work? 
how fascinating. I know it hides itself as judgment. And it's like, that's not good. And you just kind of stop and say, hmm, maybe it is good. What are some reasons it might be good? And you start doing it to yourself. Again, other people show up that you would have judged harshly and you're a softer presence that's looking at them with compassion and wholeness. And that is very healing to your own heart as well. Envy, I'm, I have this thing where I don't experience a lot of envy in my life. I always, when somebody does well, I always think, well, that means we can all do well. Um, but I can imagine it would. It, you know, I'd love to hear a report on this from anybody who has lots and lots of envy. I think if you just start talking about, oh, yeah, I know you want this other thing, but let's look at the things we do have. Like, th that would be a way of, of being kind to the envious one. Don't push the envious one away because love of the whole self is where this all starts. And if there's a part of you, I was talking to one person who said immediately, a part of her mind reared up and said, F you, like, I'm not gonna be nice anymore. And the challenge there is that you say, oh, I hear you, little angry one. I get it. You had to create boundaries for me. You had to keep us safe. You played such an important role in my life. I'm so grateful to you. You even have to be kind to the parts of you that aren't kind, especially to them. Okay, Jessica says, I'm so kind to others and have such difficulty with myself. Why is the criticism so hardwired for many of us, Martha? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Jessica. I listened to um, a podcast by a guy named Luis Mojica this last week. I, I listened to several episodes because I'm gonna be interviewed on his podcast. And he is a somatic therapist and he knows a lot about trauma. And from him, I learned something I'd never heard before. You may have heard that the fight or flight response is our response to danger. And then we add freeze because if there's nothing you can do, you just kind of go limp and play dead and that can get you out of a difficult situation, which is why we sometimes freeze when we're frightened, like on stage or whatever. But Luis adds a fourth thing and that is fawn. We fawn on others. We, we begin to grovel and connect with powerful and potentially dangerous people in a way that is meant to please them. So make no mistake, this is a defense mechanism. But he says, since it's social, you get reinforced and patterns form in your relationships and it kind of gets locked in. So if you look for that fawning response, I have it in spades. I have so much of this in me. And that is because I'm afraid. And part of the reason I'm afraid is that I'm not kind to myself. Jessica, try the hardcore kindness to the self. Like if you just have to sit on a chair for five minutes, and this is why I call it hardcore kindness. It's like, I will think kind thoughts for five minutes toward myself. It's not, it's not gonna come naturally to those of us who are used to fawning on other people to keep safe. So, Give it a try and watch when you then interact with the person, you no longer have to fawn on them because you're actually kind to them, which includes things like setting boundaries. I wrote in one book and I had to think about it for a long time, but I think it's true. You do find out if you go far enough that what is untrue is never really kind and what is unkind is never really true. Ultimately, when you're kind to yourself, you tell the truth about yourself and you tell other people the truth about themselves and yourself gently. And this creates a boundaried world where there's no fawning and there's no fear and things are much, much better. 
Okay, says little t, how do we be kind toward our own habitual pessimism? Mm. Many of you may have seen the Disney cartoon called, I think it's called Inside Out. And it's about this little girl who's having some emotional wobbles and her emotions are represented by four cartoon characters. And they're always like, one is disgust and one is happiness and one is anger and one is depression. And the depression one, it's such a great character. The others are all running around trying to do things, but the depression one just falls down on her face and can't move. And the rest of them have to drag her around. <laughs> and if you've got a pessimistic side, that's what you do. You, you talk to it. Oh, there you are, my little blue self lying flat on its face on the floor. Wow, I get it. This world is really rough and there are lots of reasons to feel bad and to be anxious. I get that. What could we do that would make you feel better? Like, would you like to have a cup of warm chamomile tea and read from a book that comforts you for a while? Because I will do that for you. Like, you have to be incredible, hardcore kindness, you guys. I never said this would be easy. This is going to require a lot of effort if you decide to do it. So consider it carefully before you jump in. But yeah, you have to love the pessimist. You, you can't say stop being a pessimist and I'll love you. You have to love it as it is. That's kindness. Yeah? You don't have to agree with it, but you have to love it. So MCR Kelly says, how can you be hardcore kind about things that hurt but are true? We loved each other and he left me. Like thoughts about the past that really hurt, but thoughts keep coming back. These thoughts that keep coming back are teaching you wisdom and compassion. And in order to get the wisdom and compassion, you must embrace these thoughts. You must, they, they are not, it's okay to like say, I need a break from this. I'm going to like get some Xanax and uh, just zone out in front of the TV for a while. It's fine to do avoidance behaviors like that sometimes. But to be truly kind to yourself, you have to at some point say, oh, that hurt, that hurts, that we loved each other so much and he left. Find the one who hurts and put your arms around that person and say, loss is terrible. And grief is sometimes almost too painful to survive. But when we do it honestly, it's so terrible that it's almost sweet. And then we can love in a way that's so sweet, it's almost terrible. And our, our whole, the shell of our psyches begins to crack open and we become bigger and bigger by being kind to the parts of us that are grieving. And if thoughts from the past are coming back like that, they need to be embraced. And it's helpful to have a therapist or at the very least a friend when you do that for the first time. Once you're used to it, one of my friends, when both her parents died in one year, just went and grieved by herself. And she said it was glorious. It was so beautiful to love them through the grieving. And she came out more whole, more magnanimous, more compassionate. So it works. Steven says, I've been trying to do this very thing at the behest of my own therapist, good therapist, but I'm always afraid I'm taking it too far. I'm so kind to myself that I give myself an excuse to not work or try. For example, instead of working on my schoolwork, I'm sitting on the couch watching TV. Where is the line between self-soothing and making excuses? What a great question. I had this very question, Stephen. I was like, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna just let myself off every hook and I'm not gonna be, 
In fact, um, Ro and I made a podcast, one of our bewildered podcasts called Letting Yourself Off the Hook. And I was like, well, we can't talk. There are, there are some hooks you stay on and some hooks you stay off. And that didn't feel right. And we actually, we were making the podcast and I just said, I don't think I'm thinking about this right. And we had to stop and like think more about it. And what I realized, keeping yourself on the hook, it's a metaphor from fishing that you're being held up by the hook in your mouth, that you're the fish and your super ego or your cultured self or whatever is pulling on the line saying, don't you swim away, you come up here to me. And if you didn't have a hook in you, what would hold you up? Like if I had no hooks in me to work and do schoolwork, what would make me work and do schoolwork? And we were talking about this and we said, wait, wait, if the fish comes off every hook, then it gets to be in the river and the nature of a river is to hold fish up, but without trapping them, without getting them locked on. And I thought about when I was, I, I graduated, my undergraduate, I, I, I was a Chinese major in college. Not that I ever, ever was good at it. I just wanted to go to Asia, so I did it. Um, and it was really hard and I had to push myself with a lot of hard work and I, actually applied for graduate school in East Asian studies, even though it was torture for me. It was literally torture. I got into a graduate program in sociology. I'd never had a class in sociology or anything, but I started reading and it was my heart's desire. And I had a seven month old baby when I started that program and I slept about three hours a night. I was desperately exhausted. And the studying was so compelling. I often couldn't make myself stop reading and go to bed. I read extra. I wrote extra. I was like the most obsessive student because it was my heart's desire. I was headed toward my own North Star. And I found out that that river held me. The river of my destiny held me up when I let myself off all the hooks of my culture. So Stephen, I don't know what situation you're in, and I know how scary it is when you're in a situation that's not really yours to take out the hooks that say, I should be going there, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. But what I know is that letting myself off the hooks and swimming in the river of what I loved meant that I don't have to be hooked anymore to perform. Like I'm, I'm not here doing the gathering room because it makes any, I, I wanted to have a free thing that people could come to. It doesn't, nobody's paying me or insisting on my doing it or anything, but you guys are here and you're the river. Yeah. And I can feel your energy and the joy of being with that energy lifts me up so that I can be very, very tired and sit down to do a gathering room and just enjoy every minute. And people say, wouldn't you rather stop? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I say, yeah, I'm really sick today. I can't do it. But most of the time it's like, oh no, the river wants to go there and it's not about hooks. So the more kind you are to yourself, the more you let yourself off the hooks that are not your heart's desire until there's nothing hurting you at all. There's just love and the energy of your true life bearing you forward and it's pretty amazing. So Mandy says, does everybody experience a difficult time with self-compassion? I don't know, I would guess so. I mean, narcissists maybe are all about how great they are, but I don't think they're super happy. So I'm not sure they're kind, I don't know. Anyway, I can't answer that question. I can just say that most conscientious, hardworking, uh, loving people have a difficult time with self-compassion because it's so easy to give ourselves away 
to social and cultural pressures and because of that fawning thing. Like the nicer you are, the more likely you are to go to fawning on others as a response to difficulty. And that's not kindness to self. So it, yeah, this is definitely an epidemic in our culture. I'll say that. Okay. Um, Disenlightened Edit says, I think it's Disenlightened. It's Enlightened Edit says, how can we connect hardcore kindness and reconditioning ourselves to receive? Always been such a doer, but my kindness has not allowed much receive for myself. So yeah, if you start being kind to yourself, what you'll find is that when someone is trying to be genuinely kind to you, you absorb it. I had a friend who had to teach me how to hug because I could give hugs, but I was really tense. And I didn't even understand that when you're used to receiving, your body goes soft in a hug. And I recently hugged someone, you know, yeah, I'm hugging people again post pandemic. And same thing, somebody who grew up with a really tough childhood and is very conscientious, maybe not always kind to herself. And it was a very stiff braced hug. But I guarantee if she starts to be kinder, the kinder I get to myself, the softer I become toward others. And that means I receive. And it's, it's not something I have to try to do. It's the river brings it and it soaks in because I'm doing it myself already. Yes. And finally, Tracy says, so would loving kindness meditation be a good way to start being kind to yourself? Yes, actually, that's how I stopped the worst panic attack I ever had, which went on for like 72 hours. It was not good. And I just started saying Tibetan loving kindness phrases to myself. May you be well, may, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering. And I just chanted that over and over and I, I came out of this very dark place. And it was the only thing that brought me back. I tried everything else. So start there. Start with just reciting. That's a great idea, Tracy, and a great way to finish up. If you want to do the hardcore kindness thing and you're really stuck, beating up on yourself, not feeling good, just start going to may you be well, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering. And then repeat, 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 repeat. This is the best workout you will ever do. And as long as you can think, you can always do it. It will heal you body and soul, I think. I'm only in a few weeks, but it's working really well. And I would love to hear how it goes with you guys. And I will see you very soon again here on The Gathering Room. Thank you for coming. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. 
Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star.